And, you know, I guess as a young actor, it's hard to know, or even as an actor in my position, I've been doing it for a minute now. Nobody gives a shit what I do, but I do have some experience. And, you know, you, you come into those moments where you're like, well, I don't know, should I, you know, put the pedal to the metal? You know, flex these chops, show these motherfuckers what I got, you know, what I'm rocking with, put my dick on the table? Or do you serve the character in a little less obnoxious sense? And a little bit more of a subdued, a little bit more of a realism kind of a tone, you know? If you watch film today, you, you see a lot of film actors that are, they're just, they're, they're trying to manufacture this sense of gravitas. They walk on the stage and they're flippant and arrogant and obtuse and, you know, menacing and, you know, well, when I deliver a line, I don't even look, you know, uh, I'm the bad guy villain and I'm playing it off like I'm such a thug and, you know, and, you know, well, uh, I'm dangerous and menacing. And when I say something, I say it and they get mad and they yell, they, ah, they tear their shirt off ah, and they're in the fucking, it's like, it's like a hissy fit. I mean, that's not really acting. I mean, any old dildo can memorize a couple fucking words on a paper. Okay, one, two, three, four, I see a sycamore. Okay, that's my fucking line. One, two, three, four, I see a sycamore. One, two, three, four, I see a sycamore. One, two, three, four, I see a sycamore. Okay, uh, whenever you're ready. One, two, three, four, I see a sycamore. Gravitas. It's not really acting. It's like a hissy fit. It's like chewing the scenery. It's like hamming it up. You know what I mean? And it just is done to dog dick death these days. You know, you'd be watching something on Netflix and it's like, calm the fuck down. What's this guy's problem? Running around, screaming, you know? That's not quite acting. You know what I mean? It's a little bit more... Well, there you go. That's the problem. It's all subjective. Because sometimes that does suit the situation. I was getting a little critical. I was watching like um, this film recently and I started to notice, oh, there's a lot of these type of, I have gravitas actors and they're like hamming it up. But I really, then I realized, oh, wait a minute. It actually suits the tone and the direction of the film. It's like, it's somewhat comedic. So you do kind of want these larger-than-life personalities to kind of fill out some of that hyperbole of character. You know, it does make sense. So there is a time and a place, and there is such a thing as subjectivity. But... Ladies and gentlemen, how do you do? It's your old chuckle buddy. Guess who? Jonathan James Ramcharan, reporting live for duty on this magnificent January 3rd in the year of our Lord, 2022. Welcome and bienvenue to Jonathan Ramcharan, the podcast. Wagwan, what's happening? Happy New Year. By the way, fiddlesticks to New Year's resolutions. I'm sick of them. You know what I mean? You can't 
get too like caught up in like what the world's doing and not doing and likes and dislikes and following and the <laughs> all that fucking mumbo jumbo, you know? Like check it. You know, I had some resolutions, some New Year's resolutions, you know? It's in the top of 2022, a new year. And I was already kind of gearing up towards them. You know what I mean? Just little adjustments that I want to make to my game. You know what I mean? And I'm wishing you the same for you and yours. You know? Little baby steps, little adjustments, little tune-ups, little fix-ups. You know? Do it yourself. DIY. Anyway. You know, the bell of the ball strikes midnight. You know? And as is and as I and I, my feet all seem up and Look, I got mistletoe on my belt buckle. You know, stroke of midnight, 2022. Happy New Year! Everybody running around screaming, fireworks galore. You know, I'm passed out in bed. <laughs> oh, for crying out loud! Would you ignoramuses knock it off? Try to get a little shut eye. You know what I mean? I had a big day ahead of me, January 1st, 2022, you know, resolutions and all. Well, wouldn't you know it, you know, got the fucking peasants screaming in the streets. Happy New Year! Driving me nuts, you know? Well, I got a fucking horrible night's sleep, you know, going into the new year. Then I wake up and I'm like, ah, fiddlesticks, motherfuck them resolutions. Didn't really get on them. Even though I had been gearing up towards them. You know, little adjustments, little this, little that, baby steps, you know. One foot in front of the other. One foot in front of the other. All in due time. So that's kind of like the takeaway. And uh, that I've kind of always known, I've been playing with it, you know, like... A part of me loves the idea of new beginnings and traditions and getting on board and putting the right foot forward. And another part of me knows that that's a setup. That's a setup to be locked in to the rules of the world in lockstep. And it's a good setup for judgment Because if you break a New Year's resolution, well, then you're a scumbag. You're a shit brick. You're a nothing, nobody, lay down, low down, lazy, lummox, low down, leech. You fucking leopard. You know, you're a nothing. You're a zero. You're a goose egg if you fuck up on your New Year's resolutions, right? Well, at least in your own judgment of yourself. If you follow what I'm saying. So it's a setup. What you really want to do is just... Know what you need to do and do it day by day. You know, don't make such a big deal about it. Seriously, because like, you know, as I aforementioned, I had some goals that I'd been working towards. And I'm like, you know, I want to just keep on that path and really kind of punch down on it in the new year. All it really did was just make me more resistant and judgmental of myself and unwilling to, um, you know, elevate. So, that's me. All the best to you. 
do what you do, you know. Um, there ain't no right or wrong way to skin a cat. There's no, like no right or wrong way to skin a cat. So, you know, whatever floats your boat, you know, different strokes for different folks. But what I'm doing is I'm just seeing what I need to do, lining it up, line up the shot, see what you need to do, and, you know, carry on. When you get tangled up, you tango on, as Al Pacino would say, incentive of a woman. Because I'm too fucking old, too fucking blind. If I was 20 years younger, I'd take a flamethrower to this place. Who the hell you think you're talking to? I'm too fucking old, too, too fucking blind. Charlie never did that. Charlie was never a snitch. And Jimmy and James, if you're here too, fuck you too. When you, when you get tangled up, you just tango on. As my man Pacino would say, when you get tangled up, you just tango on. No big fucking deal, you know? Don't have to cry about it. So, you know, that's kind of my vibe going into 2022. It's beautiful to have a fresh new year, but, you know, um, I know what I need to do and I'm just going to do it. No matter what day of the year it is or month of the year it is, you know, as long as I'm just doing what I needs to do. Hallelujah. Yeah. So if you're new to the show, Jonathan Ramtran, the podcast. This is a show where I bitch, whine, squawk, bellyache, and kibitz about myself in order to relate to y'all self. Y'all the dear listener. Y'all the dear viewer. Shared experiences, kindred souls, BFFs forever. You know? When you tangle up, you just tangle on. Because she's got a great ass. And your head's all the way up it. The show's available on uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, my own website, jonathan-ramcharan.com. And as always, folks, if you're enjoying the show, getting some laughs, chuckles, gags, guffaws, chortles. If you are digging the show, folks, please help my black ass out. Share me with a friend. Sharing's caring, folks. You know what truly is. Charlie never did that. Charlie was never a snitch. And James and Jimmy, if you're out there, fuck you too. Too fucking old, too fucking blind. <laughs> and if you're a returning guest to JRP, if you know, if you don't know, if you may or may not know, I am an actor extraordinaire. Thespian of the bone, ladies and gentlemen, and damn proud of it. Yeah. As I mentioned there, you know, a little impersonation, maybe not the greatest, but a little impersonation and one of, of one of my dear heroes, Mr. Al Pacino. Because he's got a great ass! And your head's all the way up it. You know? Wow. You know, they're all a bunch of assholes. Because you don't have the guts to be who you want to be. You're going to point your fucking fingers and say, there goes the bad guy. Well, what does that make you good? You're no good. You just know how to hide. How to lie. Me? 
I always tell the truth. Even when I lie. So say goodnight to the bad guy. You're never going to see a bad guy like this again, let me tell you that. Manolo, fly pelican. Why you always got to talk to me like I got to know something, like I got to fucking know something? You know what your problem is, putty cat? You, you got nothing to do in your life. Why don't you get a job? Work with blind kids. Anything beats laying awake all day waiting for me to come fuck you, I'll tell you that much. My man Al Pacino, you know. Dog Day Afternoon. The Godfather. Yeah. Panic in Needle Park. That's an oldie. I think that was his first film. Hadn't seen that one in a minute. You know? Serpico. 88 minutes. <laughs> um, Dick Tracy. You know, Scent of a Woman, Frankie and Johnny, another odd one, uh, Any Given Sunday, Heat, um, Sea of Love, that might be one of my favorite Al Pacino's, that was a great one, Sea of Love, uh, one of the greatest actors of all time, definitely of the 20th century, Al Pacino. As if we really know what other actors were around pre-20th century. Oh, my favorite actor was Jimmy Doodly-Doo from fucking 1802. Oh, he was great. <laughs> Where did you ever see a fucking actor pre-20th century? You know, like, I guess, like, where, who, who? Wasn't there like an acting duo called like the Lunts or something? Or the Lutzes? Or the Lunts? There was like some famous acting family called the Lunts. The Lutzes. They were like known in acting lore as being very famous actors back in the day. You know what I mean? And I guess there was like Shakespeare. <laughs> but aside from that, who the fuck was there post or pre-20th century? But anyway, Al Pacino, one of the greatest actors of the 20th century. And uh, and into the 21st century, you know, he's still rocking it. And why he comes to mind is, I've been watching a lot of films lately, and as I am an actor extraordinaire myself, a lesson that a lot of actors, I think, would do good to take note of is on the idea of gravitas cojones stage presence gravitas now Pacino Al Pacino he's like a magnetic force on stage I mean arguably the greatest film of all time The Godfather well a little bit of film lore film legend you know Uh, movie-making legend. Um, when he got cast for that role, the director, Francis Ford Coppola, really wanted him, right? 
had seen him on Broadway work. I think he'd seen him in a few small projects. Maybe he saw him in Frankie and Johnny. Or sorry, um, Panic in Needle Park. That was like his, I think his first credited film role, Al Pacino, or among his first. And um, he played like a strung out drug addict, you know, a hype, you know, like a heroin addict. And um, so anyways, he's like, oh, yeah, Al Pacino, he'd be great for this park. Michael Part, Michael Corleone, right? Well, I guess the producers and, you know, the production, they're, they're, you know, you know how them dildos are. It's much like any corporation. You know, you got the fucking dickheads in the fucking office who think they know everything and they make all these suggestions. But the people out in the field, like the sales reps, the people in the warehouse, the people on the floor doing the work, the hands-on people, you know, their opinion doesn't mean anything. But, you know, upper management's going to fix the problem. And they get in there and start running their fucking yap. Well, anyway, um, I guess Pacino, you know, having come from like a stage background and, you know, having a vision of his performance, you know, like a master actor, even in his younger days. You know what I mean? It's kind of like inborn. You know what I mean? He saw the character as a little bit more of a slow burn, you know, like Michael Corleone comes back from war. Reunites with his family. He's dating a woman. He's a little subdued. A little bit quiet. A little duck out of water in this gangster family. You know, just kind of a meek and timid, you know, all-American Guido. (laughs) All-American fucking um, Italian-American, right? And, you know, in those times, there was, like, major racism on, like, Italians in America and stuff like that. And, you know, they had their um, struggle finding their place as American citizens, you know. So, you know, he's this young Italian American, fought for his country, engaged to a woman. Um, He's in this crime syndicate family that he kind of wants to separate himself from and be his own man and... He's a little bit more reserved. So like that's really coming through the character in the early scenes of The Godfather. And then, you know, you got these fucking pencil dicks in the fucking front office. Well, what's going on with this Al Pacino character? We need him to be more intense. We need him to be more gangster. We need him to be more like fucking, I don't know, James Cogney. Ah, see? I'm going to paint the town red. Ah, hey, what are you doing, copper? Ah, see? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shoot the whole lot of you. Ah, see? Like he, they wanted him to be a little bit more gangster. I guess, a little bit more intense. He was playing, you know, a little bit more of a subdued character, a little less gravitas due to the circumstances that the character was in, in the chronological order of the shoot. The Coppola, Francis Ford Coppola, our copywriter, our photocopier, Francis Ford Coppola is like, uh, well, no, no, no. He's the right. He's the right guy. He is the right actor. So they bump up a shooting schedule. They bump the shooting schedule up to that famous scene where, um, you know, Michael Corleone performs his first hit. You know what I mean? Like uh, the the Italian restaurant scene where, you know, he's sitting at the table. 
you know, and he's like, oh, just one minute. And he goes to the bathroom and, you know, he looks under the toilet and there's a gun and he goes out and he, spoiler alert from a movie like 50 years old, 60 years old or something, but, you know, classic. Spoiler alert. He goes and gets a gun out of the toilet. You know, he, you know, he goes and sticks his hand in the urinal, comes out with like a fucking 22 or whatever. And he plugs them fucking thugs, you know, shoots them dead right there in the pizzeria, you know. And then there was that gravitas, right? Holy moly. And all them fucking peckerwood pencil dicks in the front office were like, holy fuck, we were wrong. We have the right actor. And boom. Al Pacino, as we know, born, you know, into the cinema mind frame in the world of cinema and film star was born you know what i mean al pacino that's my dog you know and um so anyway um he kind of put the brakes on that gravitas he kind of served the character in the right way and you know i guess as a young actor it's hard to know, or even as an actor in my position, I've been doing it for a minute now. Nobody gives a shit what I do, but I do have some experience. And, you know, you, you come into those moments where you're like, well, I don't know, should I, you know, put the pedal to the metal? You know, flex these chops, show these motherfuckers what I got, you know, what I'm rocking with, put my dick on the table? Or do you serve the character in a little less obnoxious sense? In a little bit more of a subdued, a little bit more of a realism kind of a tone you know if you watch film today you, you see a lot of film actors that are they're just they're, they're trying to manufacture this sense of gravitas they walk on the stage and they're flippant and arrogant and obtuse and you know menacing and you know well, when I deliver a line I don't even look you know uh, I'm the bad guy villain and I'm playing it off like I'm such a thug and you know, and, you know, well, huh, I'm dangerous and menacing. And when I say something, I say it. And they get mad and they yell. They, ah, they tear their shirt off. Ah, and they're in the fucking, it's like, it's like a hissy fit. I mean, that's not really acting. I mean, any old dildo can memorize a couple fucking words on a paper. Okay, one, two, three, four, I see a sycamore. Okay, that's my fucking line. One, two, three, four, I see a sycamore. One, two, three, four, I see a sycamore. One, two, three, four, I see a sycamore. Okay, uh, whenever you're ready. One, two, three, four, I see a sycamore. Gravitas. It's not really acting. It's like a hissy fit. It's like chewing the scenery. It's like hamming it up. You know what I mean? And it just is done to dog dick death these days. You know, you'd be watching something on Netflix and it's like, calm the fuck down. What's this guy's problem? Running around, screaming, you know, that's not quite acting. You know what I mean? It's a little bit more, well, there you go. That's the problem. It's all subjective. Because sometimes that does suit the situation. I was getting a little critical. I was watching like um, 
this film recently and I start to notice, oh, there's a lot of these type of, I have gravitas actors and they're like hamming it up. But I really, then I realized, oh, wait a minute. It actually suits the tone and the direction of the film. It's like, it's somewhat comedic. So you do kind of want these larger than life personalities to kind of fill out some of that hyperbole of character. You know, it does make sense. So there is a time and a place and there is such a thing as subjectivity. But I'm taking a lesson from the book of Corleone. You know, I'm taking a lesson from the book of Pacino in that sometimes it's good to reserve that gravitas for when it's needed and not to try to be such a ham and a scene stealer. You know what I mean? And that's a great uh, classic story, you know, like, the Godfather, he was about to get fired from that, the most famous film of all time, the greatest film of all time, arguably, arguably, because he wasn't really putting on the pedal, putting the pedal to the metal. He was kind of playing it true to the character as he was trying to craft it. And then when it was time for him to step it up and put on the fireworks, he did. And that was just a good display of I think discipline as an actor and trying to serve the character in the film and not being so needy for that attention there's so many actors that they're they're always like fidgeting around and making faces and you know they want to have a cool look or a, a flippant way they say something or maybe if I smoke a cigarette menacingly like it's always some little gimmick other than just like I guess, like, the intentions of the character, the intentions of the writer, dialing it back a bit. But then that gets murky because then that's about subjectivity. You know what I mean? But for my dollar, for my bang for the buck, for what I'm trying to do, I think less is more. Yes. A little discussion on gravitas. Because he's got a great ass. Your head's all the way up it. (laughs) I keep on wanting to say, show me the money. (laughs) But, uh, you know, cruise. That's cruise control, Tom Cruise. But um, Al Pacino. He's like the quintessential example of gravitas on film. And I see a lot of actors and actresses these day and age trying to manufacture that that gravitas. It's really funny when you when you, you look at these little pipsqueak nothings and they're trying to hold it down like they're like not to say that you can't, but it's like and and that's the thing too, it's not about stature. It's not about, oh, okay, Al Pacino is, you know, arguably one of the greatest actors of all time versus Jonathan Ramcharan, an up-and-comer, an unheard. Of course, I don't have the right to have a certain sense of gravitas on film compared to Al Pacino. It's not about that. It's about what the character needs in that situation to serve the film. It's not about the entitlement of a star brand versus an unknown 
It's about what the character needs to serve the film. And a lot of times you see these actors that they're just, they're not playing a character. They're not serving the film. They're not telling a story. It's about them getting their, their cheesecake shots. You know, they want to look, you know, they want to steal the scenery, chew the scenery. They want to ham it up. And it's like, this isn't really what, at least for my definition, my subjectivity on the matter, it ain't what my bang for the buck actor work truly is. That's not it. That's not it. As I mentioned, one, two, three, four, I see a sycamore. Any fucking retard can can memorize a line and spit it out like an idiot. You know what I mean? It would be the same as if like um For example, who doesn't love a guitar solo? Right? But what are they technically doing? They're technically strumming and picking notes on a guitar at a fast pace. So, you know, you hear like some beautiful guitar solo. Wow, the intricacy of it, the arrangement of notes, the 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 flow of it, the rhythm of it. All those bits make it special and unique it's the craft of sight of the musician you know the way they hear it and the way they deliver it that's what makes it special i would imagine this is subjective okay but technically what they're doing is they're plucking notes very fast in a certain order and an arrangement and you know we kind of all can match a tempo of you know you hear guitar solo Okay. What if any old idiot picked up a guitar and just started whacking notes away? Oh yeah, it's the same thing. It's a guitar solo. It's trying to have like this gravitas that's like manufactured. Am I making my point? Sometimes it's just better to lay back in the cut. Less is more. Hallelujah. So there you have it, folks. Jonathan Ramcharan, actor extraordinaire. Quick sip of water, boss. Don't mind me, boss. Oh, oh yeah. I am also a stand-up comedian extraordinaire. Yes, indeedy. Um, much in line with, um, some of the stuff I'm talking about here, you know, less is more, you know, just hold back on the fucking ball parade of, you know, displaying your nuts in public, you know, just less is more, take a chill approach. Don't get so ahead of yourself with your resolutions. Just do what's in front of you. You know, I'm taking that same approach with the stand up comedy. See, I had a great year, 2021. Wasn't exactly how I imagined it, but it actually turned out very good for my stand-up comedy career. Yet to be revealed very close, very soon, to some very interesting information regarding yours truly, Jonathan Ramcharan, and his stand-up comedy career. You know? On the precipice of a revelation. But, um, as I, you know, 
take in this new opportunity of a new year, 2022, I'm like, you know, it is what it is. You know? 2021 was what it was, and I did what I had to do, and I did what I did. And it worked out fine, more than fine. It worked out beautifully. So going forward, that's kind of where I am. It is what it is. You know, I wish I could say that, you know, my path forward in comedy was more clear at this moment. Only thing I know is that, you know, I'm as funny as I've ever been. I'm going to continue to be funny. And I'm going to shit the bed from time to time. I mean, that's a given. But, you know, uh, what the fuck? I, it is what it is. And um, very excited to see what that is. Hallelujah. So there you have it, folks. Jonathan Ramcharan, stand-up comedian extraordinaire. Yeah. Yeah. And again, as this is the first episode of JRP of 2022, let me again reissue a happy new year. I cleaned the bathtub. You know, that's what I like to do on like the beginning of a new year is get the house clean. I don't like starting the new year off in a dirty house. You know what I mean? Not that to say that the house is dirty, but you know what I mean? It's always nice to get it extra fresh to begin a new year. So that's what I did. New Year's Eve, I cleaned my bathroom. I was on my hands and knees. Scrubbing the toilet, scrubbing the john, scrubbing the sink, the tub. Rub-a-dub-dub, three fucking otters in a tub, you know? I was scrubbing the tub, you know? Breaking my back, busting my hump, you know? Wasn't exactly easy, but I got it done. And um, that speaks again to some of the things I said about just lay back and... Kesara, sara, whatever it will be, will be. Let it be. It is what it is. You know, less is more. Dial it back on that gravitas. You know, I find myself getting stressed out when I clamor all these fucking duties and obligations and things that I got to do. You know, like a checklist of chores. You got to do this. You got to clean the bathroom. You got to clean the house. You got to do this. You gotta, ah, fuck off, right? I get like lazy about it. But when I just know that, okay, I got to do something, then I go and I do it, it's all gravy. So that's kind of what happened with the, the tub cleaning, the, the bathroom cleaning. I was kind of dreading it because like I had a busy week, you know, like I said. I was doing podcasts. Um, I was working on some comedy stuff, winding down my 2021. And my plan was to, you know, take a chill break, you know, watch movies, chill out. Then on New Year's Eve, clean the tub, clean the house, and get ready for 2022. Then I started getting a little stressed. I'm like, oh God, I gotta go clean the bathroom. That's like at least an hour. You know, I don't like rushing. That's my whole thing. I don't like to rush. Let's just take it easy. What's the big deal? You know, you can... Being all in a rush to clean the house, or you can make a few hours of it, you know? <sighs> Roll out of bed, get the coffee going, you know? You know, do a quick prayer, you know? I do my morning prayers, and, you know, and look outside. What's going on outside? Greet the new day. <laughs> Let me throw on a podcast. 
throw on a podcast, have a coffee, you know, and drinking coffee, and then you know, hit play on a podcast and drift into the bathroom, start scrubbing a toilet, you know, on your hands and knees, washing tiles. So, like, you know, take it easy versus <laughs> running around like a chicken with their head cut off doing chores, you know. So I took it easy, cleaned the bathroom, and um, really set the tone. Feel really fresh and revigorated for the new year. Clean apartment, rip-roaring, raring to go. And, um, you know, had a couple sessions as well. Not in the new year, but, you know, like New Year's Eve, December 30th, had a couple sessions. Um, little writing sessions for my goals as a filmmaker and as a comic, as an actor, you know, Noi Productions, little production company I began to wet my beak, so to speak. Feature film, documentary, skits, sketches, scat, skadoodle, the whole kit and caboodle. Noi, <clears throat> Noi Productions. So I had a little session where, I, you know, I Sat around, came up with some ideas and stuff. Pretty cool, you know. Um, read a few books. January 1st, I finished a novel that I'd been, you know, dinking around with. I've been dinking around with this book all throughout, uh, well, I guess like from the summer onward. So like, I don't know, like June or July of 2021 to January 1st, 2022. It took me to read this novel took me to read this novel it was like a 300 page novel but like I said I was dinking around with it for a few months but I was busy with the production company and podcasting and work and right bang that off so I started the new year off right in that sense I finished a book which I will report on very soon very interesting book I had read and then I watched a few movies Yeah, I had the opportunity to watch a few films. Um, I care a lot, I believe. I care a lot. It's on Amazon Prime, starring Rosemund Pike, I believe her name is. She's the actress from that film Gone, Baby Gone, or no, Gone Girl with Ben Affleck. Uh, she's uh, an intense actress. You know, she's good. Rosemund Pike, British actress. Very unique name. You don't hear that one that often. Rosemund. Yeah, it's a pretty name. Rosemund. Rose, Rosie, Rosemund Pike. Starring Rosemund Pike. Also starring um, Peter Dinklage. <laughs> That's a great last name. Um, the actor from uh, Game of Thrones. And it's this real interesting film, um, written and directed by Jay Blackstone, Blacksmith, or Black Boy, or something. I don't know what the fuck. Jay Blackson, Blackcock. I don't know. And uh, this interesting filmmaker, Jay Blackstone. Black. I'll get it right. And um, it's about like this. Uh, this like. Uh, this professional guardian. She's like a professional guardian where she 
she gets all these vulnerable like elderly people who like um who are on like you know disability old age retirement whatever she gets them into her grips then she milks them she milks them for like their retirement their 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 savings their um their their um physical assets like she'll take their house their their belongings and auction them you know she'll just ruin these people with this like faulty sense of guardianship and um it's kind of like a con gangster thriller comedy con gangster thriller comedy film con gangster thriller comedy film yeah I care a lot. It's pretty brand new as far as I can tell. Um, it's been out within, I don't know, the last few months anyway. 2021, going into 22 here. So I don't want to give away too much. If you're into like cons and griffs and thriller and, um, you know, that seedy kind of world of, you know, white collar crime mixed in with a little bit of thuggery. You know, uh, check it out. I care a lot. Definitely an interesting film. I also taught. I also checked out a documentary. Pharma Boy. Pharma Boy, which is on um, Amazon Prime as well. Um, interesting. It's about the pharmaceutical grifter, alleged grifter, Martin Scarelli. Now, apparently somewhere in the 2010s, somewhere in there, he purchased a pharmaceutical company and the rights to this pill, this HIV treatment pill, and he jacked the price up something like thousands of a percent whatever like the pill used to cost $13 he jacked it up to 750 and it was like causing an outrage it's like oh my god all these people need their pills and their treatment and you've priced you've price gouged people in some cases literally to death you know and he was like a very irreverent kind of douchey I guess where that term pharma boy comes from. He played up the douche character. He was a young guy, like a young, brilliant financial wizard. And, you know, he came from this very humble beginnings. Um, He had like these Albanian parents that worked as janitors that fought for him to have a better life in America. And he, he rose to the, to be like a financial genius and, you know, Played the market of capitalism to a T. Played it like a fiddle. The American dream. And the documentary goes into the ethics of what he did. And kudos to the filmmaker. Um, The filmmaker, um, he, I forget his name, but he, you know, he... He really wanted to get the story 
even so much to the point where he moved into the same apartment building as Martin Scarelli and attempted to befriend him. And, you know, he would watch his... uh, Martin Scarelli would, like, do these live streams. I don't know where, on what platform, but he would do these live streams and people could call him and ask him questions and stuff. And he was just like an irreverent dick, you know, like calling people just... Just a real negative Nelly. Somebody not worthy of any attention, really. Other than people were just so intrigued by his rise to fame and the money he had amassed. But other than that, just kind of a dickhead. Like, I don't know why anybody would... Just kind of a swarmy type of dude that I, I wouldn't particularly put any attention on, right? Aside from the fact that, okay, yeah, he's a rich guy at least that's how they portrayed him in the film and like I said I give kudos to the filmmaker he went after his story but it's a documentary but it I don't know if it is it's almost like a mockumentary because you can't really take what the filmmaker did seriously in my opinion Because everything was under a pretense. Everything was under a deception. So he moves into the same apartment building as this Scarelli. Spoiler alert. I mean, it's, it's already known the whole story. But if you haven't seen the film, spoiler alert. I'm going to be talking about it a little bit here. He moves into the building of Martin Scarelli. Um, to allegedly befriend him. So then everything's under a pretense and a deception. All his interactions with him. And the interactions just... He tried to frame them. The filmmaker tried to frame them as, you know, he's just this journalist who really wants to get to the heart of why Martin Scarelli did what he did. And, you know, um, I figured the best way to do that is to move into the same apartment building as this multi-millionaire megalomaniac and, um, you know, try to befriend him. And, like, you know, there's shots of him, like, knocking on Martin's door and dropping off a six-pack. And it's just so phony. It's just like you're deceiving. Complete deception. And, like, it's see-through. Like, that's pretty mental what you're doing. And you try to pawn it off as, like, oh, you're just this bleeding heart that really wants to get... Martin's side of the story, even though he didn't portray any of Martin's side of the story, really. There's like a lot of, a lot of, like granted, I think what the guy did was kind of scumbag stuff. Like, why would you raise the price so high? I could understand doubling it. Hey, fuck it, it's your company. But how much is enough? But yet again, like I said, why it's kind of deceptive, it's kind of like the filmmaker seemed to almost want to portray this sense of he almost kind of wanted to portray his like i'm just making this intrusive film this very highly intrusive film i'm going i'm just making this in, intrusive propaganda film to find out martin's side of the story and i'm really just his benevolent friend and i just really want to make friends with him even though i'm in pure judgment of him and i'm framing him in a certain way i'm really just his buddy and it's like they go into this like, for example, yeah, he raises the price of the pill from $13 to $750. But 
That's the American dream. That's capitalism. It's your company. You can sell it for whatever you want. And it doesn't quite explain. See, most insurance companies covered the pill. So from what I could get, which they didn't quite make clear, like that's what I mean. It's like, if he's such a benevolent buddy of Martin, the filmmaker, why didn't he... I mean, I don't know what happened. Granted, in, in the filmmaking process, a lot of things can happen. So I don't know if there was ever a moment of revelation, cat out of the bag. Like, hey, Martin, by the way, I'm a filmmaker and I would, I'm really just trying to get a story on what's going on with you in this pill gouging scheme that the world's been talking about. Like, there was never like a moment like that in the film where he just full out said what his intent was, the filmmaker, to Martin Scarelli. But if it did, the question should have been, so like, what is your philosophy behind raising this pill price, price gouging? Like, why are you doing it? Do you not understand that it's affecting so many people? Like, what is your idea behind this? They never get to that. So you don't really get a clear idea of why. Martin did what he did, even though they try to present it as like, oh, we're just trying to get to the real story, but they never asked the real question. Why are you doing what you're doing? And from what you can deduce or what you can kind of infer from some of the things said, like Martin had made comments like it's covered under all medical insurances. So apparently the majority of people who needed this pill, it was covered by their insurance. And if it wasn't covered by insurance, well, then you'd have to pay for it. But those were in very unlikely circumstances from what I could kind of gauge what Martin's viewpoint was. And also, Martin made a very good point. He goes, why is everybody, this Scarelli character, he's like, well, why is everybody such up in arms about a 70-year-old medicine? This is a 70-year-old medicine that he is price gouging on. And that was my thought from the beginning. I'm like, why are they just like... And it was a generic pill as well, I think. It was like generic like aspirin. You know how aspirin is apparently generic? And then they come up with name brands like Tylenol, Advil, blah, blah, blah. Right? Well, apparently this is a generic drug. So why don't they just make another drug under under a different name? Why were they clamoring for this 70-year-old outdated pill? Couldn't they have come up with another one? And it's his company. Isn't that not the American dream, the capitalist dream? You sell your shit for whatever you want. Look, I'm not saying he wasn't being a dickhead about it. He most certainly was. I mean, how do you take a pill from $13 to $750? Only an asshole would do that. Like, I'm not saying he was nice for doing it, but was he really wrong? And they don't really get into that. And that's a good point that he raised. Like, yo, like, it's a 70-year-old drug. It's like outdated medicine. You guys can't figure this out or whatever. So I don't, they never get into why he did what he did. That would be the question to ask him. It didn't seem like they did. It was just like accusations and accusations and saying what he did and will he be accountable for it. And then the film ends up with like, um, you know, again, spoiler alert, but this has been out there for a while. Martin winds up getting seven years in prison. He gets brought up on charges 
that aren't related to the price gouging. He gets brought up on charges of running a Ponzi scheme for one of his previous companies. But yet they don't go into what he did. Again, it's just vague. He was brought up on a litany of charges. You know, there's like a laundry list of charges that he was brought up on. Then when he walks out of the courtroom on the final day, he and as a lawyer, he and his lawyer address the media and he goes, hey, you know, I'm glad the thing is done. The prosecute, the, the case, the trial's over. Um, they really had nothing. We were only convicted of a few minor infractures and we're very happy with the outcome. Then it goes, Martin Scarelli sentenced to seven years in jail. But what was he sentenced for? Was it just drummed up bureaucracy? I mean, if I really wanted to know, I could just Google it. But I mean, that's the point. It's like this documentary. Why didn't it mention what he... You don't even mention what he went to jail for? Right? So it's like... I would say it was more like a docudrama or a mockumentary. It was interesting, but it was a very biased perspective. I'm not saying the filmmaker was right or wrong. I'm just saying it was biased. It wasn't like you couldn't. I I I didn't watch it and be like, oh wow, yeah, Martin Scorelli, what a piece of shit. Like, it didn't strike me that way. I'm like, this is kind of biased, and it it's not really. F- the information isn't being presented in a way for me to make my own decision. The information is just being presented to me in a way to believe that narrative of what an evil piece of shit. Even though it's unclear what he really did that was so evil. Because also, they do go to um, the one the one patient that they interview who takes this drug that was... Um, price gouged the one person they interview that was actually a user of this medication had a somewhat positive interaction with Scarelli this alleged asshole because Scarelli was prolific at that time at the time of the incident he was pretty prolific on social media so he would do Q&A's like ask me any question and this person who you know Their medical bill went from like whatever it was to like $30,000 a month. Like that's insane. You know what I mean? So it's like it is very ugly and negative. And why a person would put a pill from $13 to $750, it is crazy. But I mean, that's his right. It's his company, right? But and the response instead of the response should have been, okay, well, fuck it. We'll make another medicine. We'll. We'll, we'll go a different route. Not, oh, please, Martin, please. Like, fuck him, whatever. We'll take our mo- money elsewhere. He wants to play capitalism. We play capitalism. He has the producing power. I have the buying power. Like, whatever. You play the game back. You don't cry about it, right? But anyways, um, that's why I never understood. Why don't they just come up with a different pill? But... Um, the the one person who you know crazy his his medical bills go up astronomically, and you know he's like, well, what the fuck, Martin? Like my 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 prescriptions have gone up this much, 
And Martin's like, well, if you have a insurance, it's covered. And he's like, well, no, there's some kind of blip in the system and diddly dum diddly do, whatever. After talking to Martin Scarelli, Martin Scarelli straightened out the situation so that this patient who needed the medication wound up getting the medication. See what I mean? So it's like, even the one, the one person that they interviewed that was actually affected by this price gouging came out on top in the end. They got the medication by Martin Scarelli himself. And then there was like other ugly little weird twists and turns where like, you know, they would interview like um, his ex-girlfriends and they'd always give these glowing reviews of him. I'm like, yeah, right. I, I have a feeling he was, he paid a little for their silence. You know what I mean? But um, there was a lot of things that didn't quite add up. So that's what I mean. I'm like, it's like, I don't fully agree with Scarelli and I don't really fully agree with the general narrative, which I believe the narrator, the filmmaker believed as well. Like the general narrative is Martin Scarelli is a piece of shit and what he did was heinous. That's the world view of him, I believe. Like the media view of him anyway. And that's also like, I think what the filmmaker's view was, even though he tried to mask it up as, oh, we're buddies. I'm just looking for the truth. Come on. The way he portrayed it. No, you had an agenda. But then again, in Scarelli, he even tried to fuck the Wu-Tang. Wu-Tang Clan ain't nothing to fuck with. Like, I guess Wu-Tang Clan put out some fucking album. It was like a concept album. It's like, only one recording, one record, and they sell it as a single piece of art, the way art used to be done. Like, you know how Da Vinci, you know, he'd sketch some stupid shit up on an easel, you know, draw a picture of some naked guy doing jumping jacks. You know, he'd draw a picture of some naked dude doing jumping jacks. And, um, you know, he'd draw a picture of it and he'd sell it like a one-off, like a one-of-one. One. So that's what I guess Wu-Tang did back in like the mid 2000s or something they made one album once upon a time in Shaolin land and I love the Wu-Tang but you know they make this one of a one album then Martin Scarelli buys it for two million dollars and then people start bitching about it release the Wu-Tang album release the Wu-Tang album how come he won't you know he's not playing the Wu-Tang album or whatever and it's like he did what they wanted him to do I don't understand why they were mad at him, the Wu-Tang. They wanted to make a one-of-one, one-of-a-kind album to be sold for one person at a one-time fee. Martin Scarelli bought it. And then that's it. Isn't that the concept? Isn't that what they wanted out of the album to begin with? And then there was like this, like, I guess the maybe the fans were crying about it. No, we want to hear Once Upon a Time in Shaolin Land. And like, you know, it's Wu-Tang Clan ain't nothing to fuck with. I mean, it's pretty impressive that a music group could be that in demand and their work be that important that someone would be willing to pay $2 million for a piece of their work. 
And granted, they must have taken a pay cut because had they sold the album on streaming services or physical copies, they, they would have made way more than $2 million. Right? But I guess it was that specific concept thing that they were doing. It didn't really make any sense to me. It didn't make any sense to me why they did it. Well, it made sense to me why they did it. It was just stupid. You know what I mean? Like, no offense, Wu-Tang. But like, uh, I ain't fucking with you. Please. But like, it's kind of dumb. You know what I mean? It's like, you're a music group. Why would you make one album that no one could hear? And then you sell it only once when you could sell it millions of times and make millions of dollars instead of this the two million that Martin sold it for or bought it for. Didn't really make too much sense to me. I didn't really quite get it. But I mean, that's their privilege. That's their luxury. They earned that place to do something like that. And I don't know why they were crying about it. It's like, they came up with a concept. They came up with a concept of a one-time sale of an art piece. Somebody bought the album for a one-time purchase. Then they had some kind of beef with him for doing what they wanted him to do. They wanted to sell him a one-of-a-kind piece of art. He bought the one-of-a-kind piece of art. Then, like, Ghostface Killer was, like, making threats on him and shit. Like, I didn't really get what was going on in that story. Maybe it was a little bit more personal than I know. You know what I mean? But, like, all I know is, like, Wu-Tang Clan ain't nothing to fuck with. I'm like, Martin, you done fucked up now, buddy. You know, you got the whole clan after you now, you know? So, you know, Martin, you know, he was just making blunder upon blunder, you know, running his mouth and portraying himself as such a villain. And then, you know... He catches that case, and even then, I don't even know if it was fair, because it's like, it seemed like he was guilty in the court of public opinion. Like, who knows if the what he actually went to jail for was, like, I'm not going to go look into it, I don't, really, I don't really care that much to know the actual answer, but, like, who knows what he went to jail was for was even legit. It could have just been more drummed-up bureaucracy. You know, they're going to show you how bad your hate is by hating you even more. Isn't that ironic? The court of public opinion is going to punish you for your hate by hating you even more with their punishment. It's like an eye for an eye leaves the whole world blind. I mean, really what they should have done was like, okay, Martin, you want to live on your little angry island of one man? You want to ostracize yourself from media and any de- decent ethical business practice? Okay, ostracize yourself. And then, you know, people with their buying powers and people with their business interests can move on. But it's like they made a witch hunt on him because they didn't like his business ethics. Really hard to tell what the fuck was going on, folks. But definitely an entertaining film at the very least. Pharma Bro. It's on like Amazon Prime. Yeah. You know. And there's another great one too. I don't really have the time in this episode to go deep into it. It's a three-parter. Definitely worth the watch. The Curse of the Von Dutch. Remember them Von Dutch trucker hats that Ashton Kutcher used to wear and uh, Little John? Yeah! Little John was wearing them and fucking Paris Hilton and every everybody was back in like, you know, 
early 2000s, you know? I never did. It was either I couldn't afford them or I didn't like them. I think it was both. I was like, I don't like them and I can't afford them. <laughs> so like, I never wore them. But like, uh, everybody was like wearing them Von Dutch trucker hats. And uh, I remember people wearing them in high school. They like wear them to like the side of their head. Like walking around with a fucking Von Dutch fucking Von fucking trucker hat. You know, looking like an ignoramus, you know. So anyway, that's a good one. The Curse of the Von Dutch. The Curse of Von Dutch. Very interesting story. Check out that documentary on um, Amazon Prime. It's very much in the vein of like corporate crime and seedy underbelly organized crime. You know, it's definitely a good watch. It's very interesting. It, it, It covers that angle like corporate crime underworld crime and just like the 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 landscape of media influence and what does it really mean because one thing I will say about the Von Dutch fad they looked cool for some people and it meant something to some people right so these people, they're wearing their hats and they look cool and it was fun and it was a moment in time and they had fun with it. And to be honest, I don't think the hats were even really that expensive. In the, in the film, they said that the hats ranged in price range of like 60 bucks. I guess that's a bit of a price gauge. I guess six, I mean... Uh, you know, for a ball cap, for a trucker hat, that's pretty expensive. But I mean, if you want to have fun and be a part of a culture and express your style, is 60 bucks that big of a deal? Okay, so you spend 60 bucks. Now you got a little piece of Americana. You feel cool and you put on your hat and you run around and do jumping jacks or whatever the fuck it is you do. And, you know, so... A part of me kind of having lived through the Von Dutch era and having seen people really enjoy wearing those hats, it was kind of a nice little flashback. Like, I never wore them. Like I said, I never really liked them or had the money to afford them. But, like, I remember looking back and like, oh, yeah, I remember people wearing those. And, hey, you know, they, they were having fun. They all had smiles across their face. People loved them. They had fun. Right? So, like, I mean, that's one of the biggest things I took away from it. Even though there was a lot of ugly business practice and a lot of hidden ugliness in the Von Dutch name as well, which is very interesting if you look into the origins of the creator of Von Dutch, like the actual artist. Von Dutch was based on this artist, like Howard Von Dutch. So the company was kind of like an homage. Is that the word? Homage or him or got fromage? A fromage? That's cheese. And it was kind of cheesy. It was like a fromage, homage, homage to Howard Von Dutch, I believe his fucking name was. Like this artist. And even there, there's some ugly origin stories. But. At the end of the day, people were very happy to wear these hats and it gave them a sense of fun. And it 
it spread a lot of happiness. You could see it in the fucking picture of these people on their faces. They're happy. Fuck it. Let them be happy. So that was one of the sad things I took away from it too. It was like, it's kind of like, it would be like, it would be like learning that Mickey Mouse was a murderer. You know what I mean? Oh, I'm Mickey Mouse. Oh, and he's like fucking killing people and shit. Like imagine if you learned Mickey Mouse was a murderer. Imagine all the joy that that little fucking mouse brought to people, you know? Them little fucking red trousers and them little brass pins. Them big fucking bowling ball shoes that he used to wear and them Dumbo ears of his, you know? That little high-pitched squeal. Hey, what's going on? I'm Mickey Mouse. You know, whatever the fuck, right? You know, like, imagine if you learned Mickey Mouse was a murderer. How heartbreaking that would be, you know what I mean? Considering the joy. That he brought, that he brings or brought, right? So kind of like the same with this Von Dutch thing. That was like the thing that I, that kind of stood out to me was like all the ugliness that happened in the business, all the ugliness and the origin of the artist, Howard Von Dutch, I think his name is Dutch potato potato chips, you know, like in in in, in all the fallout and craziness of it. There was these people that enjoyed wearing these hats at a very specific time in their lives. They had fun with it and it was beautiful. And, you know, you just see the smiles on their face. It's just. They were like guilty by association or like, you know, it's kind of like seeing kids smiling when their parents are at war, you know? You know, little kids smiling in a family photo and in the background, you got their looming parents. Like. <laughs> seconds away from killing one another, you know what I mean? So, very interesting. The Curse of Von Dutch, that's on Amazon Prime. Yes. Well, that does it for another episode of JR the P. Happy New Year's to y'all. Very happy to be, um, you know, I don't even know if anybody's watching this. <laughs> You know, that's another good lesson for the new year. Just do what you do no matter what. I don't even know if anybody's watching this podcast. But, um, you know what I mean? I put everything I have into it when I do it. And sometimes it's not very much. But sometimes it's a lot. And I put it all in. And uh, I'm very happy to do it. And, you know, more to come, more to re be revealed. Um, and I'm sure that the efforts will eventually bear some fruit or it is what it is just happy to do it and um if the reward for this podcast is just the fact of i feel very good today january 3rd 2022 making a podcast that's all that comes from it word Sara. Suck on my dinky dee. Anything will be, will be, you know what I mean? And, um, yeah. Hallelujah. It's your old chuckle buddy. Guess who? Jonathan James Ramcharan. Reporting live for duty on this magnificent January 3rd in the year of our Lord, 2022. Yes, sirree. Happy New Year's, folks. Go after it. Get it. Giddy up. But don't fucking stress out about it. You know, there ain't no need to shit the bed. 
one day at a time. The show is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Odyssey, my own website, jonathan-ramcharan.com. And as always, folks, if you're enjoying the show, getting some laughs, gags, guffaws, chortles, chuckles, the whole kit and caboodle, please help my black ass out. Share me with a friend. Till next time, folks. You live it. You love it. You realize it. I peace.